welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Zoe Ingram. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today, our guests are Marilyn Mailman and Rosal Bista from the project Building Capacity for Transformative Learning. And we're going to be talking about their book, A Transformative Edge. And the whole idea of talking to Ozil and Marilyn came up uh, because we were thinking about actually how do you how do you achieve this much needed cultural change, mindset change towards open science, and uh, maybe transformative learning has something to do with this. Let's find out. So I am Ursel, Ursel Biester from Berlin, Germany, and I am the project leader of um, an EU-funded project called Building Capacity for Transformative Learning. And it's a two years project um, with five partners, partner organizations from five EU countries. And um, over the course of these two years, we produced four things, um, and the one that we will talk about today is the book called A Transformative Edge. This is about the project and about myself. I have a background in adult education and also in, well, something you could call alternative education. Um, so I followed a three years program at the Chaos Pilot School in Denmark, which is a program where which is aimed at transformative learning. So I have some sort of practical background there as well. And I work as a as a coach, a job coach, and also um, I have a background in design thinking and consultancy. Okay, so my name is Marilyn Mehlmann. Uh, I am I have dual nationality, British and Swedish, and um, I've worked since the 1970s with empowerment programs and later with community programs and at the same time with working in parallel with business. So I've been a management consultant for a long time, for maybe 30 years. And all of the, all of the projects I regarded as action research. So I approached every contract and every project as an action research opportunity. So over that period, um, I've developed and had the privilege to work with people who were also interested in developing a lot of models and methods, uh, many of which are concerned with transformative learning, uh, not least education for sustainable development, which was sometimes mistakenly believed to mean education about sustainable development, but it was never intended to be that. It was education for sustainable development, by, which by its very nature has to be transformative. So um, I think that the experience I have in that area and in actually management consultancy were very useful when, when Urza and I began working on this book together. Um, yes, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I published my first book in 1981. (laughs) I'm kind of interested what transformative learning is. So if I may attempt to answer that, I would say that it is learning 
that is not predictable uh, you can you can plan and manage change but you can't plan and manage transformation because it happens when the learner often suddenly but after maybe a long preparatory period sees things from a broader perspective so it's not reversible you can't it's unlike change you can experiment with change and you can say oh, that didn't work and you can go back but transformative learning implies that you now see something you didn't see before and you can't suddenly unsee it so it is qualitatively different from what we normally mean by change and change management and things like that. Does that help? Mm -hmm. Also that um, so transformative learning has, a, has an academic history and of course also there are many practitioners out there. One thing that might be interesting to people who are not familiar with the field is that, I mean, normally when we talk about pedagogy and learning, we think of transmission so transmission of knowledge like traditionally you have a teacher you have a learner and the teacher transmits knowledge to the learner and in transformative learning this is really not like that um, because the yeah as Marilyn said the transformation happens within the mind the mindset of the learner so it's not about transmitting any sort of knowledge it's rather stimulating um, yeah thoughts and a perspective change within the learner Mm -hmm. which may also have a collective aspect so it may not be an individual learner it may be a community that shifts its its uh, norm so shifting the norm within a given community is also a feature of transformative learning and how do you support that the main the main attribute honestly is listening as as an educator uh, and as a coach facilitator whatever i think the main quality is the ability to listen and to hear what is being said and also what is not being said what is meant um, this enables other people to hear themselves if I listen to you very closely you will start hearing yourself as you speak and so listening is absolutely absolutely key to the process of transformation I think both for the learner and the educator. And in this sense, we are all learners. Mm -hmm. well. mm. Yes, and maybe you can also, um, well, stimulate, of course, the learner with some, some facts and figures that maybe were unknown to the person before, which, but you never know how they fall <laughs> within, within the mind of the learner. So normally we say within a, Uh, um, many of the current models of, of education, everything starts with information. So you, the educator, pump out information, which is transformed by the receiver, the learner, into knowledge, in the best case, which then somehow eventually leads to insights and action, possibly. And we all know that doesn't work. Yeah, although it's still used very much as a model. But I mean, if that worked, there would not be a single smoker left on the planet and there wouldn't have been 30 years ago, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so what we see instead happening is that the process begins 
with caring as an educator, a facilitator, a coach, I need to care about the topic, but not least, I need to care about the learner, learners. And when I care and when I listen, I can intervene in several different, different, at several different points in their learning process. So instead of only being able to intervene, now I'm exaggerating a bit, but instead of only being able to intervene at the at the point where information is given, I have a whole range of different intervention points. And one of them is indeed supplying information, but normally when there is a question asked. So when the learner asks, what about this? Then I can help them to find the information themselves. So we call it finding out. But even before that, I can also help them to formulate their questions which again is dependent on how well I listen. But I can help them to formulate questions that maybe they would never have reached clarity in without some assistance. So as an educator, I can help them to formulate questions. I can help them to find out the answers. I can help them to clarify their own intentions. Now I know, now I've asked my questions, I've got the answers. What am I going to do about it? So I can help them to formulate their intentions, and they might be a learning intention. Now I'm going to go and get a PhD, or it might be an action intention. Now I'm going to go and um, convert my lawn into a permaculture plot or something. Yeah, and I can intervene at the, at the action as well. Uh, once they start taking action, as a teacher, as an educator, as a facilitator, I can support them. I can have a hotline to help them. And I can also support them afterwards in helping to assess what they did to give themselves feedback. And so we're back to the caring again. It's a, a way of looking at education which gives the educator far more flexibility, far more intervention points in the process that is going on with the learner or the learners, regardless of whether it's an individual or a community. Okay, so, so you start. So you start with the reflection process, uh, and once you you basically you kickstart some kind of uh, need for more uh, for more technical knowledge. That's when when you supply that, right? But first, you have yes. to have this um, this need established. Yes. Okay. So, Two thoughts um, came in my mind. One was that it sounds like a much slower process, and also it came in my mind something like a nurturing. So if you have if I a child that is maybe one or two, I think the way that you educate them is the same way that you guide them with, with care. And so somehow I'm seeing that in, in the adult education setting. So I, I agree absolutely. There is, uh, we, we abandon that too quickly, uh, that care that we show to small children um, and start stuffing them with information they haven't asked for. Um, and we all know that we remember best things that when we have formulated the question ourselves. And even better, we remember it when we teach it to others. So peer support and peer tutoring uh, or peer coaching are strong components of transformative learning. Um, I don't agree that it's, I mean, it, yes, it can sound slow. In one sense, it is slow because there is no guarantee how long the actual transformative change will take. Uh, 
I had just a couple of months ago an email from uh, somebody I was coaching a long time ago, and she wrote and said, finally, I understand what I think you meant 20 years ago. <laughs> so, yes, it can take a while. <laughs> um, but the, the transformation when it comes is instantaneous. That moment, that aha moment, you know, when you say, yes, now it makes sense. That is almost instantaneous. But the, the actual educational process is not longer in my experience. In, if anything, it can be slightly shorter, but I wouldn't, I would say it's, it's similar. So uh, just to put in frame of framework of the open science, I mean, what you mentioned before um, that you um, that well, that the transformative learning is a method to um, for teaching for sustainable development. Right. Um, and I'd uh, postulate or claim that open science is part of sustainable development. Um, for our planet and so on. Um, that's one, one of the practices that needs to be established. And also, therefore, why we also that's also why we um, teach, we do trainings for open science. And we do see that a lot, that when we talk about open science, the um, if we just talk about, okay, what it is and how it works, I mean, there's this aha moment, yeah, okay. But when we talk about uh, and what it means um, to a broader community, what it means to uh, innovation potential um, of science, what it means in a broader sense, basically. There is this aha moment, um, definitely. But I'm still wondering um, how do you have any evidence on that this aha moment actually transforms into sustainable actions? So in at least in the academic uh, discussion it is said that um, unless there is action you wouldn't talk about the transformative learning. So the transformative learning process would not be complete um, or would not be completed. And also from a practical side, I mean, it's really hard. How do you measure it? How do you put, how do you say, well, this is where it starts and this is where it ends. But um, yes, I mean, I would say yes, if you, unless you have actions that um, people also integrate from this uh yeah, mindset transformation. You wouldn't. I. I wouldn't even call it transformative learning. I mean, you have an aha moment, but then you also really need to to follow up. So it's it's a longer process. It's basically it can, you cannot have it as a one-off interaction, or can you? It is. It is. I, the the process itself, I would say, is normally mostly a longer process. But it also really depends where the person is. So, for example, if I imagine um, that you are teaching a group, or that well, that you run a, a seminar, um, and then the people who follow it, um, they all come from their different walks of life, and they are all in their own processes regarding this topic in in one way or another, and then. For some, it might be that during this workshop they they hear something or the, the things that they understand there make such an impact that really it yeah a, a transformation happens um, and that maybe they are also already capable of of um, of action because also between understanding something I mean and how long it takes to understand something also varies. Um, and then being able to take action is again a different 
thing because sometimes i mean you need to understand a lot of details before you're able to take action i mean you need to organize your life and your your actions everything you need to see where the where your intervention points lie um but yeah so if if your um point of view let's say changes through um um the interaction that happened in your seminar maybe something within yourself changes and then you also start actively looking for um possible ways where you can change your actions yeah i i wonder where you ha do you have an example of a um different community where this process has taken place and it's um kind of up and running where basically the open science could look up to or uh, look into it and see okay this is uh these are examples um we could follow or this we can learn from we did a lot of work at one time with um local agenda 21 if you remember that do you remember agenda 21 yeah <laughs> Vaguely, please remind. <laughs> yeah, an agenda for the 21st century. It was one of the major outcomes of the um, uh, conference in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. And many countries and indeed many municipalities and communities set aside budgets to work with a local agenda for the 21st century. Um, one of those that I worked with quite a lot on and off for a decade or more. Uh, was in Ireland, and it's it's an example of almost everything that we've been talking about here. It's a huge project. It was um, uh, Europe's biggest, Western Europe at any rate, biggest slum clearance project. Huge, like thirty thousand people were being rehoused. Um, uh, low income, low education, high dropout, high criminality, the lot, you name it, they had it. And we worked with, for example, these one-off things, as I mentioned, eliciting visions which had very long-lasting effect. We, as they worked, uh, after one vis uh, visioning session with, with the, with the uh, residents, they set up three projects that they'd agreed on, action streams, if you like. And then there were some people who hadn't signed up for any of the three projects, and they decided what they were going to do was to follow the three projects and document them, which is an amazing undertaking for a community about nature. So we offered them uh, training in journalism and photography and so on. And so the fourth project became documenting what the other three were doing. And it became uh, what they called a, a cookbook, I think, uh, of methods. So they described the process they went through and which methods they used and their experience of using them. So all of this took a long time. In fact, the project only really closed down maybe two, a couple of years ago. And that has been going, I think, for 17 years. So it's an example of both the the impact of uh, a one-off educational experience and the long-term uh, effects when supported by local decision makers. It was extremely successful in some ways, uh, not in every way. There's still high criminality in the area, for example. It was successful in meeting the original criteria, which was that the housing would be completely remodeled and would not be high-rise. There would be no high-rise at all. So I think maximum four stories, um, as opposed to the 17 stories that they had originally. It was, it was like being back in the Soviet Union when I first went there. I mean, amazing. Um, so the objective was to remodel it, to have modern 
low-rise housing that all of the families who lived there or all the residents who lived there before the change should still live there afterwards, which is also amazing. For It could have become a gentrification. It's really close to Dublin. Um, that more people would be attracted to live there, which they were because there was plenty of room. There was low density. That every household would have a patch of land that they could see from their own windows, whether it was their own garden or an allotment, if they wanted it. Um, and so on and so on. So all of the all of these criteria were met. It's still got above average criminality, I think, and probably. I would guess, but I don't have any statistics above average dropouts from school. But the change is absolutely enormous. So yes, it, it was successful. So for uh, for the open science movement, I hear basically we should start documenting our processes, right? Yes. So absolutely. we should start taking more of a meta approach of actually looking at everything that's happening and start documenting. Mm-hmm. What's happening and how? Yes, yeah, so and then start seeing patterns, which is the which is the essence of research. I kind of I'm still stuck on this question of of listening as an educator, and I'm trying to apply it somehow to our trainings. And I'm also thinking about the future. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, we teach what we call deep listening on pretty much all of our workshops. Deep listening is a way of listening to yourself. Uh, it's also a way of, of listening to other people. I think it's a key to avoiding many of the ills that plague even the best methods and tools for designing the future. Because I just read an article by a very prominent futurist Um very prominent professor and this, that, and the other, and also very active as a practitioner and as a consultant. And he was bemused by the fact that some of his, a significant minority of his participants come out of this deep experience of working with futures with a kind of racist or other uncomfortably uh, awkward and polarizing uh, attitudes, which they probably or almost certainly had before, but they didn't shed them nor in any way mitigate them during the process. And I think learning to deep listen to yourself is one tool that we can use. Um, it was developed in its present form by a, um, an American future professor of future studies called Warren Ziegler. And I have found it incredibly useful in almost every kind of workshop setting. When somebody listens to me completely non-judgmentally, I find myself listening to myself in a different way. So that's one thing. When I can listen to myself non-judgmentally, I can begin to access those aha moments because, of course, they're all, to a large extent, inside me as well. They may be outside in in pieces of puzzle, knowledge puzzle that I didn't have, but the the basis for a shift of perspective is always inside myself. Um, Does this sound too abstract? It's very practical. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) I'm actually thinking the whole time, um, because 
the when it comes to open science, um, our uh, well, from experience from trainings now, there's a lot of. I sorry, I back. I take it back. No, it's not only from trainings. It's actually my experience with people thinking about open science and uh, like wanting the to change something. It usually comes from a place of frustration, and there's a lot of um, there's basically a lot of frustration out there, a lot of anger even uh, with the system as it is. And I wonder. Um, if that's a good thing, <laughs> like if this is if this is the prerequisite for change, or if it's uh, if this can be also just um, if, because it's easy to address someone who is angry about something and wants to do something about it, right? Then you can uh, easily transform this into positive actions and common visions and so on. But if someone is just um, not really interested, but kind of like yeah, this is something everybody's talking about I'll, I'll take a peek or whatever and uh is there a way to trans to kickstart the transformative process in this kind of participant or person um, i think it depends on the context also i i, I i'd like to hear you on this also just to say um i think uh to quote again warren ziegler the futurist uh, with whom i worked for a long time um, he used to say that uh, serious change is not something you plan, which I also mentioned earlier, transformative change. It's something that happens when there's a reasonable balance between dissatisfaction and hope. So if you have no dissatisfaction, you have no reason to change. And if you have no hope, you have no energy to change. And I have a kind of working hypothesis that small dissatisfactions and small hopes give rise to small changes. <laughs> so what we can do is to boost either side of the, the, of the equation. Now, in my experience, as you say, most people are high on disappointments, uh, higher probably than on hopes today. So they might come in and they might have big disappointments, but they're not voicing them because they don't have any hope. In that case, you can um, aid or accelerate their, their own process by giving them hope, by enabling them to see the opportunities. And I think we have... A in general, in our societies today, we have an imbalance in that direction. We have bigger dissatisfactions than we have hopes. But if the, if the anger is, is the dissatisfaction is anger with other people, then it won't get us very far. Because anger with other people is simply displacing. I need to have the hope that things can be different, not not because. Uh, somebody shoots the the, the villain, <laughs> not a kind of Wild West kind of <laughs> anger, but because I am part of something that is contributing to what I hope for. I, I think this is actually very nicely illustrated right now by the um, current activities in the COVID-19 research, because this is something, there was a... a well, crisis, I wouldn't call this satisfaction, but it, it, it's kind of the same direction, right? Um, 
And but there is a hope uh, that if we work together, we can solve this. And all of a sudden, there's such a spark of collaborative research, really of sharing, openly sharing everything. Um, it's quite amazing um, and never really seen before. And it also does speed up the process. I mean, the scientific discovery regarding the um, the COVID-19 uh, disease and the SARS-CoV-2 um, SARS virus sorry, um, is, is just uh, mind-blowing what's happening. And also new tools for collaboration come up like daily. Um, people come together and make things possible which were unimaginable just a couple months ago. I was just thinking before, Louisa, when you brought up the point about the dissatisfaction and that people are angry, I was thinking that what Marilyn was talking about was community development. And I think that we have with open science, we have from the bottom up like a, a big need and also a call for equality somehow and to bring science forward because we're sharing. It, it just makes sense on so many levels. And then we have other structures that are from the top that are that are hard to get by. So I think that in between this dissatisfaction and hope, we, there's a lot to deal with, like how to create new structures. And I think this is this is something that's really, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just because now I'm older and when I was a child, I didn't realize that the structures were so strong. But I think this is something that right now in our time and age, if we want to transform something, we have to be able to also transform the structures. And this is something where I find I'm I'm having a difficulty to see how it can happen. Thank you. Yes. I, for me, the defining structure that is a, the major obstacle to all transformative societal change is the economic structure. And until we change our view of money, we we are constantly going to find ourselves dragged back to where we didn't want to be. That's my impression. So, yes, uh, other structures flow from the, I think, I might be wrong, but my view at this point is that other structures flow from the economic structures which are unsustainable and um, inadequate to the situation we find ourselves in. Well, we invented money. We can reinvent it. Let's do it. Actually, one of the very first interviews we did on uh, Open Science with uh, Ivan Oransky, um, he said something very similar just regarding to the scientific system, right? We are doing it. We invented it. We can change it. We are the system. <laughs> it's not yes. God-given or yes. it's, it's not just upon us. It's we actively doing the system, living the system. We can change it. It's up to us to define it, right? And that has something to do with empowerment. That in our trainings or in open science, that we are empowering people to know that they can change the system. Exactly. Yes, and I mean, that would be maybe if you are asking for uh, hints or tips on what to do, um, my, my one tip would be, um, I mean, you say it's, it is a community already, the open science community. And to really strengthen that point that people uh, talk between themselves and that they don't rely so much on a pre-given structure, but that it's, I mean, maybe it is already, I don't, I don't know the field, um, but yeah, to really enable dialogue between people, because then they also can share their 
frustrations and hopes and develop plans and yeah i think that would be really uh crucial i i guess probably it is already happening well to a certain extent i mean a lot of um a lot of frustrated people uh basically uh if they don't find this space where they can transform this uh dissatisfaction into hope and structural change maybe or just at least personal change they just quit they just leave yeah and if you if they find a community where they can where they can also yeah like marilyn said like where they notice that they are listened to uh uh maybe that would prevent them <laughs> yeah and also i mean i don't know how willing and open people in that community are to talk about their frustrations um um my experience is that often it is difficult for people to to open up uh, that they are actually frustrated and angry um but once they do and they dive down to yeah the the reasons for that um i mean that's where the key for the transformation lies really and then they find what it is that really needs to be transformed and then they can also find the the power to do it but just to have uh, a space where it's okay to uh, voice a frustration i mean yeah that's also very important and to feel that yeah i'm in a community where that's okay to do but don't you have the experience as well i mean uh, you both of you are very experienced coaches and facilitators and teachers um I have had the experience that when there's too much venting that it's that it kind of amplifies itself and it could be a good thing but sometimes it isn't it's kind of uh paralyzes people and sends them into a loop of frustration without exit how to prevent this from happening so like a good amount of venting hmm. One one exercise that I love to do, but you'll find lots of hints in the, this is the commercial break. You'll find lots of hints in this book. Very good. Village. I was about to ask <laughs> about the book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I love to do is to invite people to deep listen to themselves and to ask themselves, what pictures of the future, what images of the future do I carry inside me? Plural, because we always have more than one. And just doing that exercise, and I sometimes I include disappointments and fears on the one hand, hopes on the other hand, but also expectations. What expectations do I have of the future? Because if my my fears or my disappointments or my expectations are identical or very close, then I will be very low on energy. And if my hopes and my expectations are very close i'll be very low on motivation but just going through this exercise enables each one of us we all have multiple pictures of the future inside us and then sharing it with one other or two other people it's an amazingly liberating experience and it stops us getting into this because i know exactly what you mean this this kind of wheel um, where we keep going around and around and it just becomes a litany of of disaster and dissatisfaction and blame and shame very often 
and that is totally counterproductive. So we need to structure the way that we talk to each other so that we are enabled to be our better selves. Nice point, Ozo. Thank you. But tell us about the book, actually. I mean, um, so you wrote a book on transformative learning, and it's for for uh, facilitators, right? So, uh, for example, people who would be looking for how to do um, open science training, that would probably be a very good read, right? Find a lot of tips on, like, very yes. practical or... Yes, maybe I can tell a bit about the book. Um, it is, um, yeah, meant for facilitators and also people who are interested in transformative learning as a as a topic. I would say it's a really good introduction also to the to the field. Um, and well, it has four sections. So the first one is about competences. Um, which competencies would you, as a facilitator uh, and also as a learner, because they are actually the same. Uh, which ones would be good to to cultivate, um, so you can uh, guide people through a transformative process, and also which other competencies that you actually gain during during such a process as a learner. Um, and then we have um, one section on theories, and then we have one on practices, so methods, and then we have one on uh, doing it yourself, so uh, designing your own event um, and well it is structured in a way that um, you can actually go and say okay maybe I see that uh, the competence self-knowledge is one that I would really like to cultivate and then you go and have a look under theories um, that we sorted to to self-knowledge and then you can find several ones um, or you say oh I would like to uh, apply a method that would enhance self-knowledge and then you look into the section of methods and you look under self-knowledge and then you find a list of um, methods that you can explore and yeah each method and also each uh, each theory that we describe um, gives an introduction basically because of course i mean many of those uh, tools are described somewhere in the internet or in other books in a very uh, yeah in a very precise way in a very detailed way and what we wanted to do is uh, to give a flavor and to give an overview and, and also already equip people so if you read it that you that you can actually already apply it but of course if you would like to dive deeper we always have references where to where to read more and um yeah and it's really meant to be um a resource so if you for example if you're planning a, um, a seminar on open science, you could, uh, while you are in the planning process, take this book, sit down with it and browse through it and say, hmm, okay, maybe I would like a, a bit of this, a bit of that. And then you um, read the chapter and then you design your event. With this that sounds exactly what we're trying to do now. We're going to have a train the trainer um, um, workshop or like a whole um course basically in november so we actually in the planning of exactly that that's amazing um also where can we get the book like is it where is it available yes um right now it is um read only available and uh, we will have a book launch um yeah in the end of august um but you can already pre-order it um by sending a mail 
to boris at visionautic.de. Um, we can include this information, yes. so his email and the ISBN in the, in the show notes. Um, the actual production of the book, which was led by Ozo, um, the whole process was interesting mm -hmm. uh, and was a learning experience, uh, which we are going to document, <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. But um, it was really fascinating to see how it evolved <laughs> because we had this open attitude to the book. So it evolved from our first ideas about it into something really quite different. And I think much more useful than what we had originally envisaged. And I think the, and one thing that we did do was we introduced, we have more than 40 people have written parts of the book. And um, this is something quite extraordinary. And they did it for love of their oh, wow. topic. They didn't do it for a reward. <laughs> they simply contributed. Um, and we introduced a kind of a new kind of, I think, I haven't come across it elsewhere anyway, a new kind of peer review system. So um, each contribution was reviewed mm -hmm. by at least two other people um, who were not most, almost all either members of the project team or other contributors to the book. And they were not, we didn't do the reviews in parallel, we did them consecutively. So each contribution was up, updated or upgraded after the first review, if, if appropriate. Uh, and if appropriate, the author was asked to comment or to re do the upgrade themselves. And then it went on to a second review. So it was a, a different kind of peer review approach. And I think it was, I found it extraordinarily um, productive. I think some of the, even from really experienced contributors, found that they were getting, improving their contributions through the peer review system. So I think the whole the whole book, which as I say was Ozil's thing, you should be beating your, blowing your own trumpet here, Ozil, but I'd like to blow it for you. It was lovely. <laughs> it was uh, uh, it was an, a very interesting learning experience in itself, and it reflects that in its results. So. Maybe it's an example of open science. It's really interesting to see how, uh, yeah, let's say so, so such different strengths of uh, threads um, of of science. I mean, from the pedagogy and educational uh, and adult education comes together with, um, yeah, with uh, natural sciences and actually has something to to contribute and to say. Uh, if it is, and if it is, um, yeah, about the process that the scientific community is now going through, and can actually so, so that one thread of science or one area of science can make a contribution to another, and hopefully in a meaningful way. I'm, I'm really inspired from the conversation we had, especially because as an educational scientist, I am, there's always a little bit of an aspect of somebody who's coming from outside of, of an education setting that there's always this certain sense of trying to instrumentalize whichever topic they're using or trying to instrumentalize education. 
to get something through. And I think with this idea of creating the space and the reflection and stimulating thoughts so people can find their own position, the only, I mean, I guess the point that I'm trying to say is in having a behavioral change or in, in introducing a behavioral change, it has something to do with that the person, each individual that is experiencing some sort of an aha moment is experiencing, as Marilyn said, because it's something inside of them. So you're just helping the process of someone to discover what is inside of them. And so I said in the podcast that it's a slow situation or it's a, it's slower. And Marilyn said she wouldn't necessarily say it's a slower learning situation. But I think it's it's getting away from seeing education as a product to seeing education as a process. And I think that for me, the take-home message is um, that in our trainings, we already try to do this, that we really facilitate that people can find their own position. And I feel like this conversation strengthened that approach strongly. Yeah. But, you know, I'm always torn between this kind of approach or um, ambition to actually teach people technical skills and this uh, which might be, you know, like maybe natural scientists would say like this softy, softy talk about, you know, self-reflection and uh, which is not softy, softy. But, you know what I mean? It's like this is there's this discrepancy in when you're doing actually experimental science where you actually, you know, work on the bench and do stuff and create stuff, you want to be like, okay, how do I do things? You know, how do I take the next step? While this is more, um, and I think this is the right approach. Like I think open the, the behavioral change that we want to achieve towards open science calls for more transformative learning and not the technical skills because technical skills you can you can acquire anyways. Um but it's the this this transformation that you need to go through that needs to be facilitated. But it is kind of difficult to be in this sweet spot between keeping the attention of people and not viewing and not trying to provide education as we've learned it from school. Because I think that's maybe the, the what you just said about people seeing education as an instrument to something. It's because we know education from school and school education is usually about, you know, someone telling you something and you need to do it and you do a test and you have to pass the test, you know, to go to a next level. Well, I think we have to divide the things. I think transformative learning doesn't need to take place when you're trying to learn a certain technique, right? So it's about reflecting something. It's about finding a position in yourself. And I think that that's one of the great things about open science is if you have the time to reflect about it, then I, maybe I'm being idealistic, but I think that a lot of people will arrive to the point that it makes sense to collaborate, that it makes sense to share our findings and our processes, and it makes sense to share our data so that we can, you know, come forward and move science forward. And it makes sense to have society involved in it. So I think that these are all the movement behind open science is something that I think most of the people can get behind, right? So that's the one side. And then there's the other side of being able to actually train in technical skills. And I don't think that you need transformative learning for that. 
No, but you know, there is this thing what you said, uh, what Marilyn said um, about being in this also the sweet spot between uh, frustration or dissatisfaction, she called it, and um, and hope. So basically, you know, there's dissatisfaction, uh, and you do uh, realize it makes sense to collaborate, and then you just go like, oh, but like, where do I start? You know, it's just like. So this part of this technical skill is also to provide the hope, right? I think that it's an individual act to say, you know what, I'm going to take the extra five minutes or the extra 50 minutes or maybe the extra five hours to figure out how am I going to sort my data and be able to make it that other people can use it, right? So it's, a, it's an individual position that someone finds. And maybe that some other individual doesn't share their data, but they share their their uh, results with their friends and tweet about it in a way that the layman can understand it. So it's it's something, you know, it's like, it's a puzzle that every single individual somehow contributes to. But I think it's all based around the idea that science needs to be more open and accessible to everyone. And so that's an individual position that you find. There is no, like, you have to, there is no, you have to do this, this, and this to, for open science to go forward because it's already going forward through so many people contributing in some way it from us today we hope you enjoyed this episode if you'd like to contact us please do uh, write us an email under uh, orion at mdc-berlin.de or follow us on twitter at oosp underscore orion this podcast is brought to you by the european funded project orion open science and is recorded and produced at max Delbruck center of molecular medicine in berlin one of the orion project partners the music was composed and produced and recorded by fabio de miguel the sound editing is done by paula Oliveira, and um, you can download our um, episodes on any podcast platform uh, you're listening to please subscribe to us that helps us to know who our listeners are take care and tune in in two weeks bye bye, bye.